Hello, I'm Mel. And I'm Steph. And this is East Asia for All, a podcast about the East Asian pop culture and media that you love. We're both working on our PhDs in Chinese history, but we also study and teach about East Asia in general. If you're listening right now, you, like us, probably also have an addiction to East Asian pop culture and media. Between the two of us, we've lived on and off in China, Taiwan, and Japan since 2007. So we're taking our love for East Asia, our experiences there, and the knowledge we've gained in the ivory tower, and making it available beyond our classroom walls. Our episode today on East Asia for All is about a fast-moving topic, North Korea, relations between North and South Korea, and U.S.-Korea international relations. This episode was originally going to be focused on the American movie, The Interview. It's a 2014 comedy starring Seth Rogen and James Franco about an American talk show host who goes to North Korea to interview Kim Jong-un, but is secretly asked by the CIA to assassinate Kim. And we already did a mini-sode on memes about North Korean leader Kim Jong-un that discusses the history of the Korean War and the divided peninsula, which you can check out. We highly recommend listening to that episode for some background information on this topic. But we're going to discuss more recent developments in this episode. Yeah, like North Korea developing the technology to launch a bomb to the U.S. mainland. And Trump's Twitter fight and all of those Rocket Man comments. The Olympics. And much, much more. The news that Kim Jong-un invited Trump to talks literally broke when we were recording this episode. Yeah, and Kim and Trump had that historic meeting in Singapore just a week ago. We're really excited today because we're joined by scholar, activist, and expert on Korea, Christine Hong, who is a professor here at the University of California, Santa Cruz. We cover a lot in this episode, and you can find links to all of the specific literature, pop culture, and articles we reference in the show notes. But what we really hope you can take away from our discussion is not only a wealth of knowledge uh, from Christine and an amazing North Korean folk story, but also how to approach news stories about a nation which is misunderstood, vilified, and putting our historian hats on here. The subject of serious historical forgetting. History is important. Yes. <laughs> and we shouldn't talk about North Korea and the Korean Peninsula without thinking about the historical events that shaped the current situation, and in particular, the role of the United States. We hope you enjoy the episode. We're joined today on East Asia for All by Christine Hong, who is a professor of literature at UCSC. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about your work and, and what you research and study. So, you know, I'm um, housed both in literature as well as critical race and ethnic studies. And I have, um, I'm affiliated with feminist studies, East Asian studies, as well as um, history of art and visual culture. And... Um, my forthcoming book project is on basically U.S. militarism in the wake of Japan's defeat in World War II, and it looks at um, race and uh, military empire within the Asia-Pacific region post-1945. But the other work that I've done that was largely activist um, in impetus and origin is work on North Korea and on Korea peace issues. As you know from my 
you know, academic biography, this has led to a number of projects. I was for a number of years, for about half a decade, I was part of an organization called the Alliance of Scholars Concerned About Korea. And from 2010 to 2013, we launched a teaching initiative to end the Korean War. And about 80 academics, mostly from across North America, participated in this initiative. And from that, a number of things ensued, including a special issue of the journal Positions, Asia Critique, on the unending Korean War. I've also, so I edited, I co-edited that, and I co-edited a special two-part issue, a thematic issue of critical Asian studies on North Korean human rights. Great. Thank you. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here today and talk about something that we've done, you know, an episode in the past about kind of conversations about Kim Jong-un in the the, uh, Chinese meme world. But we're really, you know, we're really interested in issues of North and South uh, Korean relations. And it's something that has been in the news recently because of the Olympics. Yes. So we did want to talk a little bit about that at the very beginning, since the Olympics did just end a couple weeks ago. It was a really visible moment for South Korea, North Korea, and for their relationship. We actually didn't watch that much of it. I watched clips of the opening ceremony, and I watched some of the figure skating, but that was probably the extent of it. I don't know. Did you watch any of it? You know, um, I have a one-year-old at home, and my time is truly not my own. And, um, <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I um, have to confess that I've only seen still images from the Olympics. I, I, I haven't even watched anything. Well, yeah. we'll all start from this position of, of somewhat ignorance and maybe not being invested in sports all that much. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, same. But I, I followed. I followed. Yeah, yeah and that's kind of how I also followed mm-hmm. yes. the Olympics because my antenna does not pick up ABC and mm-hmm. I didn't want to pay extra on Hulu. But oh I did goodness. follow, you know, online these these articles, all of these, you know, think pieces and opinion pieces on what was going on at the Olympics. And it was really striking to me, especially the media portrayals of the Kim family. And I don't know if the, you can speak to that a little bit, but particularly uh, Kim Jong-un's sister, Kim Yo-jung. Um, I thought that her portrayal was very interesting. And I wondered if you could speak a little bit about portrayals of the Kim family. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, how did they strike you just to get your impression? Well, the one thing that I thought was really interesting was all of these comparisons of her to Ivanka Trump. And and that struck me as as very odd as, you know, that media outlets were assuming that she was there simply as an answer to Ivanka Trump's presence. That that sounded me that that seemed a little bit odd to me that they would assume that's why. I think that it had to do with the other Western media narrative, which is that North Korea. Um, and this also goes to what different members of the Trump administration um, we're saying, which is that North Korea in extending a um, olive branch, Kim Jong-un indicating in his New Year's remarks that North Korea was open to participating in the Olympics. You know, the way that the United States received this was so curious because um, not only did the members of the Trump administration, but also members of the media, um, they repeatedly stated that North Korea was attempting to drive a wedge between two historic 
allies, the United States and South Korea. And assuming that the natural and organic relationship was between the United States and its junior security partner within the Asia Pacific region. And um, a former member of Obama's State Department, Daniel Russell, even indicated that South Korea better not run too far off the leash. And so that's how the unequal partnership was described. But there was an assumption that that was the natural relationship and that North Korea was somehow intruding on that. And so um, I think that what's interesting is that the way in which Kim Yo-jong, the younger sister of Kim Jong-un, was being depicted was that she was part of a North Korean uh, propaganda-oriented charm offensive that was meant at disrupting U.S. security ties with South Korea. And so, so I think that it was within that context because the assumption was that whenever Donald Trump deploys Ivanka around the world, that it is part of a kind of charm offensive. And what's interesting is that indeed the South Korean media was absolutely fascinated with the younger sister, you know, of, of really this political dynasty coming to the South. And I think that, you know, what we shouldn't lose sight of is in addition to the way in which the South Korean media fixated on the smallest details of her appearance, the tilt of her head, um, her response to elderly um, Koreans, you know, like whether or not there was a kind of neo-Confucian deference that was apparent, you know, in addition to all of that, the fact of the matter is, is that she delivered an invitation from the North Korean leadership to Moon Jae-in, the current president of South Korea, inviting him to a summit. And so that's the crucial thing, you know, and, and I think that what's interesting is that despite the fact that Mike Pence was also saying that North Korea, despite its so-called charm offensive, would not succeed in, you know, creating any distance between the United States and its historic regional allies, we saw plenty of evidence that fissures were there. And what I think is interesting is the two Koreas, when they marched into the Olympic Stadium, they did so under a unity flag. And that image of the Blue Peninsula is something that is drawn from the peace and reunification movement. And, um, you know, I think that it's interesting to realize that, you know, with all the kind of hoopla about that one um, figure, what was his name? Joshua Cooper Rommel. You know, he was an MSNBC oh, the, reporter oh, and um, right, he basically, whole, yeah. you know, his, his gaffe was that he was basically suggesting that South Korea ha- was taking its cues from and had learned a great deal from Japan without acknowledging during colonial, right, 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 the right. colonial <laughs> relationship. And, and what I think is interesting is that, you know, he was viewed as a, a kind of egregious uh, revisionist of history, but Mike Pence was too, because in stating that it was North Korea that was driving the wedge, he actually disregarded what the historic U.S. relationship has been in um, authorizing a division system on the Korean Peninsula. Indeed, it was two junior military, U.S. military officers who were deputized by Truman to actually divide 
the Korean Peninsula three days after the bombing of Nagasaki, even though Korea was not an enemy of the United States the way Germany was, um, Japan was. It was a it was a colonized victim of Japan. Uh, nonetheless, it suffered the fate of Germany. And so, um, what Mike Pence was stating was that he was disregarding the U.S. role in the division of Korea and actually not really confronting what that unity flag meant. And that unity flag was a critique of U.S. intervention because it dissolved that division. Um, And the other thing that I think was interesting was that during, you know, it wasn't just that the members of the North Korean delegation were in that special box with Mike Pence and Moon Jae-in and his wife. Mike Pence refused to stand when the two Koreas marched into the stadium. And I think that it's interesting also to realize that, you know, people are giving Donald Trump a lot of credit for supposedly bringing about this possibility of peace. The fact of the matter is, is that Donald Trump has, he stated that his policy toward North Korea would be one of maximum pressure and one of maximum engagement. And he stated that this was a big distinction from Barack Obama's policy, which, you know, was called strategic patience. And he acts as though Barack Obama's policy was somehow kinder, gentler, softer than his. The fact of the matter is, is that Obama used North Korea as a kind of ruse to militarize the Asia-Pacific region, achieved during his two terms a re-encirclement of China, um, and um, also didn't negotiate with North Korea at all, um, and sanctioned the heck out of North Korea. So it was basically a no-talk, big-stick policy. We're seeing more of the same from Trump, who hasn't um, engaged in dialogue with North Korea. In any case, this is just to say that it would have been extraordinarily unseemly if Trump hadn't agreed to Moon Jae-in's proposal that the war exercises be suspended. And that is because these war exercises, if they had gone on as they typically do, you know, every single winter, the eyes of the world would have been fixated on the fact that the United States practices the invasion and occupation of North Korea, the decapitation of North Korea's leadership, and a nuclear first strike. And so this is what has been suspended, at least for the time being. But these exercises are due supposedly to commence, uh, recommence sometime relatively soon. Picking up on a point that you brought up a little bit earlier, especially if we're talking about the way that the Kim family and the North Korea-South Korean relationship is portrayed, that you talked about how Kim Yo-jong was bringing or an invitation for Moon Jae-in to come and, you know, have a relationship with the North Korean government. I think it's it, it's a stunning turn of events. You know, um, North Korea from, well, let's just say this, from the moment of its existence as a state, North Korea has been the crosshairs of the U.S. war machine. The United States has threatened North Korea with nuclear annihilation uh, going back to the middle part of the 20th century to the present day. And, you know, uh, during George W. Bush, Bush's axis of evil era, it's during that time that North Korea was listed as a permissible target 
of a U.S. nuclear preemptive strike in the 2002 U.S. Nuclear Posture Review. From that moment onward, you know, that U.S. interventionist moment onward, North Korea saw fit uh, to nuclearize, and it took to the nuclear road. And so you could see that, in fact, um, and, and North Korea viewed what the United States did in Iraq under a neoconservative president, and then what the United States did in Libya under a liberal international, but still interventionist president, Barack Obama, and realized that Libya basically bartered away its nuclear program. And in fact, you know, a number of years ago, North Korea actually listed in its constitution that it is a nuclear state. And it's indicated that it's not willing. It, you know, Up until now, it has indicated that it wasn't willing to bargain away its nuclear program. But what we've seen recently with these major, um, very dramatic and really bold diplomatic gestures from Kim Jong-un, he has stated that North Korea is willing to put its nuclear program on the table. And willing to put it entirely on hold, I believe, for, for talks, correct? He, he stated that as long as these as dialogue is happening, he will not continue with any further testing or development. Let's look at this realistically. North Korea has enormous nuclear leverage. And it's actually now, now that it has achieved the capacity, at least in theory, to strike the continental United States, it has now, in this amazing turn of events, indicated that it's willing to actually uh, potentially negotiate away its nuclear program as long as the threats from the United States and its historical uh, hostile posture ceases. You know, so we're, we're in an extraordinary moment. And it seems also, you know, there's just, there's been so much happening and it's hard to keep up with, honestly, because there have been so many developments and, and so many things going on with news relation to, to North Korea. And, you know, I think this is, this really touches on what you talked about in your essay, Learn to Love the Bomb, um, which we'll link to in the show notes. Um, and, you know, you had this really interesting way of talking about Trump's, you know, strange Lovian um, nuclear presidency. And you wrote that, you know, the American public is really engaging in this moment of reflection and looking at North Korea in a way that has never looked at before. And and you use this phrase, you know, looking at themselves through North Korean eyes. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how, you know, we're already talking about how it's kind of playing out in mainstream conversations about, you know, if how Kim Jong-un is as a leader, but then also how it's playing out with the Americans' relationship or view of themselves. Right. I mean, this is, this is something that so many people remark, you know, when it comes to U.S. foreign policy, when it comes to U.S. militarism, when it comes to um, U.S. wars abroad, the fact of the matter is, is that the vast majority of Americans can maintain an elective posture of knowledge or ignorance toward what are world-shattering actions on the part of the United States around the globe. And so, you know, various people have described this in a number of ways. The Korean War historian Bruce Cummings describes Americans as 
the party of forgetting. And he describes North Koreans as the party of memory. And so, you know, for North Koreans, when Donald Trump uses a phrase like fire and fury, like the world has never seen before, they understand that as a historical experience of ruin during the hot fighting days of the Korean War, a war that has never been resolved with a peace treaty. And during that war, the United States had absolute aerial mastery, and it perpetrated what Bruce Cummings describes as a bombing holocaust on North Korea. The United States took out civilian infrastructure. This is actually an act of, it's, it's, a, it's a war crime. And, you know, there are some Chinese statistics that indicate that North Korea lost an estimated 30% of its entire population. Four million Koreans were killed during this war, 70% of whom were civilians. So that tells you something about the dirty nature of this war. And, um, you know, so by contrast, Americans refer to the Korean War as a forgotten war. That's how it's memorialized in American society. Chalmers Johnson, also another Asianist, um, who had been a consultant for the CIA, but then had an awakening in Okinawa during the 1990s, uh, during the time when Okinawans were organizing and mobilizing because of the rape of Okinawan schoolgirls by U.S. military. And that was a moment of uh, consciousness raising for him. And he became an anti-imperialist critic. And he states that the United States is afflicted with imperial amnesia. And so, you know, basically, when it comes to U.S. foreign policy, and this also goes to something, someone like Kwon Sing Chen, who basically states that the first step that's necessary for de-imperialization is demobilization. It's the sort of defanging of the U.S. war machine. And these things don't happen as a matter of course. You know, there's no uh, political pressure for empires to de-imperialize. And uh, very few people have ever thought to even pay any heed to what the historical and structural circumstances are behind U.S.-North Korea tensions. But I think that it's interesting that in this historic moment in which the United States is, in theory, within the crosshairs of the North Korean war machine, there is some attention to what the historical basis of North Korean, Korea's defensive posture is all about, you know, and, and so I think that we're in a very interesting moment and I have never seen, you know, having participated in uh, Korea peace um, struggles for a number of years and had a few allies, you know, um, I've never seen the anti-war movement galvanized in this broad-based way as it is right now. That's great to hear. So maybe we should talk a little bit more generally about how we go about discussing uh, North Korea, and especially since we have so little information to go on. And so how that works, um, if we're trying to think about what's going on in North Korea, what's going on in this relationship from the outside. And like avoiding these pitfalls of stereotyped characterizations of the leadership or, um, you know, the assumption perhaps that North Korea is driving a wedge in, in peace agreements. Yeah, I would love to hear about about that. Well, I mean, it's an 
it's a it's an interesting problematic, right? I mean, or just a problem in general. You know, to what degree do, does the average American have a thick understanding of complex societies? And you know, um, I end that article, um, the 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 one learn to love the bomb by citing Chris Marker. And so Chris Marker was, of course, the famous, you know, French filmmaker, but he was also a photographer. And he was part of a delegation that included people like Claude Lonsman, who did Shoah, you know, that documentary film. And, and they went to North Korea in the wake of U.S. bombings. And North Korea was... The society was in full reconstructive swing. And so the surface of what Chris Marker was saying was bustling activity. But what he said was um, he could sense the devastation below the surface. And he said, what burned with the houses? Like, in other words, the uncountable dead of, you know, like U.S. wars, these asymmetrical wars, you know, the other side's casualty count just doesn't matter, right? And then the other thing that he said was that the victor's gaze is immodest. And, you know, I think that that's something that relates to our current day perception of North Korea. We have a very immodest gaze. You know, it strikes me that, you know, that that Chalmers, jo- Chalmers Johnson, when he was talking, theorizing that term blowback, which is a CIA term, what he was stating was essentially that the effects, the unintended consequences of US, U.S. foreign policy actions, basically U.S. interventions around the globe, um, would manifest in ways, consider the 9-11 attacks, that the vast majority of the U.S. public would understand not as the result of prior U.S. interventions, but would view these as acts of aggression that would justify and warrant further U.S. intervention. So it becomes a kind of perpetual cycle of war, right? And so I think of that with regard to North Korea too. And it's not as though a more complex portrait of North Korea isn't available. So even if you look at Chris Marker's photographs, you see no goose-stepping, you know, legions of soldiers in Kim Il-sung Square. Now, you know, even Democracy Now!, which counts itself as a progressive um, media outlet, they too resort to stock undated footage of goose-stepping marches, of um, goose-stepping masses, of um, wailing masses, of images of weaponry that are, you know, shown of of various North Korean leaders inspecting uh, weaponry. So it's all very jingoistic in nature. There isn't a complex imagistic archive that these media outlets use, you know, but it's available. And so, you know, like um, within the past decade, North Korea has in unprecedented ways opened itself up. You know, for those of us who've been to North Korea, one of the things that's most striking is that we think of North Korea as so isolated. And indeed, it's been isolated by sanctions. And and those are very real and very consequential, um, you know. But when you go to North Korea, 
It feels curiously international in ways that you wouldn't expect. And so there are people from all around the world there. And the other thing too is that, um, you know, within the last decade, North Korea has opened itself up, including the northern provinces, to humanitarian aid um, surveys. And so the EU's ECHO, the UN's, you know, uh, World Food Program, uh, even U.S. NGOs, or, you know, even the U.S. State Department has had access to vast sections um, of North Korea, basically the entirety of North Korea. And as, you know, the scholar Hazel Smith has indicated, these humanitarian aid organizations compile information about the day-to-day life practices of North Korean people. And this archive amounts to a kind of intelligence trove, you know, where you can see a portrait of society other than the one that usually gets transmitted. The other thing, too, is the Associated Press has had a bureau in North Korea for now, it seems like it's been several years. So it's not as though North Korea is entirely closed off to the world, but we still tend to get only these very cartoonish images of North Korean society. Yeah, it's so funny that you say that. Um, I was just thinking about that as well, these kind of kitschy representations of North Korea. There's this subreddit that I go on sometimes on Reddit called R Accidental Wes Anderson, 95% of it is North Korea. And so there's this kind of fetishization of the look or feel as so other and so different and so strange. And and also, as you said, almost kind of staged um, the whole thing in a way that is very bizarre, but seems to me that that is really the mainstream representation of North Korea. It's an extraordinary perception on the part of especially Westerners who go to North Korea, who, you know, are part of tours, but they assume that every single thing is staged for their view and that North Korea is a gigantic Potemkin village, you know? And and so there's something really bizarre about that kind of assumption. I think that it's interesting too about uh, Chinese tourists who go to North Korea and speak about North Korea's occupying a kind of historically prior moment developmentally and um, viewing North Korea as almost in, through a nostalgic lens. Totally. And so there's that kind of tourism too. But I, I always wonder what Chinese tourists make of the fact that when you do go to North Korea, North Korea is absolutely unabashed about having these um, maps of Korea during the Koguryo period when Korea extended well into right. China, right. you know, and it's just, <laughs> it, you know, I, I do want, and, the, and you know, it, 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 it's a curious, it, it's, it's curious. I've never heard that commented on, but I can imagine that that would not be a welcome idea. Yeah, in, <laughs> right. in their imaginary yeah, yeah. of North Korea. The other thing that I've heard or, or read observations of of Chinese tourists in North Korea is this idea of North Korea not only being kind of a step in the past of their past and and nostalgic remembrance, but um, also this idea of it kind of being untouched and unpolluted and buying all these beauty products from North Korea because it feels different from China. I I had read some quotations, I think again in the New York Times, of um, Chinese tourists to North Korea who imagined it as this kind of untouched 
place in the same environmentally as well, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's bizarre because, you know, well, what I'll say is that definitely with regard to ginseng, you know, supposedly, I mean, you just hear this over and over again, North Korean ginseng is supposed to be amazing, you know, insofar as ginseng is something that is so prized, you know, like um, I've heard stuff about that. Sure. Um, But then that makes me think also about the way that the demilitarized zone has become a kind of wildlife uh, and biodiverse refuge, you know? And so it, it's um, it's also sort of viewed as being a kind of site where certain types of flora and fauna are thriving. That kind of reminds me of Chernobyl. There's exactly. a similar narrative with Chernobyl. I was going to say that too. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's really fascinating how how interplay of, you know, environment and, and, and human politics and that narrative. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's also interesting the way in which North Korea gets figured as an untapped resource, because I mean, then it's viewed through the lens of accumulation. You know, and in this way that I think is very interesting. So going back to the George W. Bush era, um, and this is on the sort of other side of things, but, um, you know, so many so-called human rights activists who agitated for regime collapse in North Korea. So, I, you know, this is one thing that I'll comment on. I found it really ironic that those people who promulgated a human rights critique of North Korea, and keeping in mind um, Samuel Moyne, he's a legal scholar, he basically stated that at least the U.S. interventionist form of human rights has to be understood and historicized as anti-communism by another name. And with regard to that form of human rights, and I don't think that that covers the full spectrum of human rights politics that are out there, but with regard to that form of human rights, um, human rights activists routinely would call for a spectrum of securitized solutions for that, that would lead to the collapse or demise of North Korean society, but that actually would imperil the well-being of the North Korean people. And so advocating for things like fortified sanctions, which actually strike against the well-being of the North Korean people and create humanitarian catastrophe, advocating even for war intervention. I mean, what sort of bigger human rights violation is there than war? But um, what I think was interesting about this too is these human rights activists would also speak about a post-collapse North Korea and speak about it as untapped in terms of its resources. And I think it's also interesting that there are people out there who are really fixated on the fact that North Korea, even more so apparently than China, is home to all sorts of rare earth minerals. And, you know, but it's interesting also to think about how North Korea deals with some of this. You know, there's been a kind of narrative in certain human rights circles for a long time about how women are at the forefront of North Korea's burgeoning market economy and that this happened during a kind of post-famine sort of period. And um, it's interesting to see that North Korea actually... um, has canonized in a way. Um, There was a woman whose name was, 
I think her name was Baek Son Heng, you know, and it was like sort of, she was, she was named by Kim Il-sung. So there's a kind of mythology around her, but there's um, a monument dedicated to her just off, you know, in the main river that goes through Pyongyang. There's a site that is dedicated to her. And it's, it's of relatively recent vintage, but it goes some distance toward North Korea, both reckoning with the fact that women have had a certain kind of entrepreneurial role in North Korea and not just giving it, you know, rather than, you know, like the sort of anti-North Korean version of that is that these women will lead to some sort of Pyongyang spring with people rising up, right? But North Korea... Can you talk really quickly about what she did and how she's memorialized? Yes, yes. So, uh, so what I was going to say is that North Korea has sort of taken this narrative by the horns. And um, she was known, she was illiterate. And the way that the narrative goes is that during the Japanese colonial period, some kind of... Uh, huckster, you know, like some sort of Japanese colonial figure sold her land sight unseen. And she believed that it would be good for farming. And so she simply put her scratch mark, um, you know, on the contract and she was sold this land that was just riddled with rocks. But the fact of the matter was, is that this land had precious mineral deposits and so the narrative goes that during the Japanese colonial period, she became the equivalent of a millionaire and that she laid the foundation for educational uh, programs for Korean youth, including sending them, you know, during the colonial period to Japan for education, which would have been sort of the place to go. And also enabling them to ha there to be bridges across certain rivers so that Koreans could use this, so that the ones that were exclusively for Japanese use, you know, um, in that Jim Crow logic, that there would be some sort of Korean counterpart. And so she was memorialized for that. She was memorialized for her good deeds. But it's a narrative that weaves a number of things together, a kind of entrepreneurial, gendered entrepreneurship, and then also... North Korea's rare earth minerals. Yeah, I had not heard that side of this conversation on North Korea as an untapped resource. That's really, that's really fascinating. You know, originally when we thought about this episode, we, we had talked about it, talking about the film, The Interview. Right. What year was that film? Do you remember? 2014. Yeah. And yeah, it kind of got away from us in a way um, because there's just so much going on. But, you know, the interview, normally we choose pop cultural products that are uh, created in East Asia or maybe have been have then been popularized in the U.S. But this is really different, right, because this is a pop cultural product made in America. And I really, I think it's more about Americans, right, than it is in a way about North Koreans. Well, it's interesting because that film, you know, not unlike Argo, you know, which is another sort of film that I think needs to be critically scrutinized. It features a CIA plot, you know, as an overt part of its narrative. And, you know, it, it seems as though by featuring a CIA plot on you know, the level of its narrative that it inoculates itself from any kind of critique that indeed there is some way in which this is the way that Hollywood is, is sort of 
you know, um, creating these jingoistic types of narratives, you know, but the fact of the matter is, is that film, you're right. It is a kind of, you know, it's a really, it's, it's an absolutely gross film on multiple levels, but I think it's interesting to think about the logic behind it and to also think about the ways in which this was tested with a South Korean audience. And even the South Korean audience was offended at the racist caricatures, you know, which I think is interesting. I actually did not know that. Yeah, it it was screened initially. And, you know, um, there's a Korean-Canadian actor who plays um, the love interest of Seth Rogen. And she she puts on... Diana Bang or Diana Bong, I think. Yeah. Okay. And and she, she, she puts on a kind of broken English, you know, type of accent. And, you know, South Korean audiences picked up on that. They found that offensive. They found the sort of portrait, you know, the overall portrait of Koreans to be offensive. But the other thing too is that there was, there's a human rights organization that's run by a right-wing Venezuelan guy named Thor Halverson Mendoza. And um, he airdropped copies of the interview into North Korea. And if you look back to some of the kind of consulting that went on, there was a guy named Bruce Bennett of Rand Corporation. Um, And, you know, Seth uh, Rogen stated that um, in the development phase of this film, that people were involved that he was sure were CIA. And um, what, you know, Bruce Bennett and some other figures have um, stated elsewhere is that a narrative about the destruction or the the sort of undoing, the fallibility of North Korea's leadership would go some distance toward a kind of mental liberation of the North Korean people. And so, you know, indeed, like this becomes like, it, it's not just that, it, it's like a mise on a beam narrative, you know, like you have the sort of, you know, a narrative within a narrative within a narrative. And, you know, within that film, you know, the interview itself is supposed to show the fallibility of North Korea's leadership. But then the sort of larger reception of this is aimed at supposedly, you know, um, with North Koreans as an intended audience, uh, showing them that North Korean leadership is not just fallible, but can be killed. Right. You know? Well, and I think you kind of see that with the end of the film, right? At the end of the film, um, the North Korean love interest um, played by Diana Bong. Diana Bong. Yeah. I think named Sook. In the yeah. Film? Going yeah. back to North Korea, you know, saying I have to be there, kind of representing this different model. You know, we can have democracy and this sort of thing. Um, it's a curious note to end on for a film that is supposedly, you know, about comedy and how fantastical it would be that the CIA would have this plot. And she's Skyping and all of a sudden, instead of being in um, militarized outfits, she, her hair is loose and, 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 you know, she's wearing makeup and and what have you, you know, and, um, but I think that it's also interesting to note that when it comes to North Korea, the culture industry is far from innocent. You know, Seth Rogen is, is, trying to assert, you know, he's trying to say like, oh, it's just, it's just a comedy, you know, and, and to dismiss it in that way. But 
you know, there's no such thing as it's just a comedy and there's no such thing as art for art's sake. And so if you look at an organization that was formed um, during the Reagan era called the National Endowment for Democracy, you know, the National Endowment for Democracy was formed to do overtly what the CIA used to do covertly. And a lot of its initiatives um, span the spectrum of what Joseph Nye calls soft power, including the construction of culture. And with regard to North Korea, which is one of the key target areas of the NED, North Korean defector memoirs have been effectively subsidized by the United States. And typically, defectors are paired with different anti-communist authors who become co-authors. And then these memoirs, in the circular way, which are funded by the United States, make the rounds. They get translated. They usually get translated back to Korean. Oftentimes, Korean is not the first language in which they are produced, tellingly. And they so they get sort of um, translated back into Korean, but then they also make the rounds in Congress. So these become like, you know, it, it becomes a kind of mirroring cultural form, you know, where it doesn't actually have, it doesn't really have an independent existence outside of U.S. intervention in the first place. And so culture is not neutral terrain when it comes to North Korea. Does that remind you of anything, Mel? That reminds me of the Cultural Revolution memoirs. Not so much in that they're subsidized or or necessarily sought out or or published by um, certain kind of uh, purveyors of culture, but in that they reinforce these memoirs of uh, childhood during the Cultural Revolution in China, which are primarily written by um, you know immigrants to the U.S. from China and in English kind of reinforce this idea that the United States has about ch- communist China. Um, yeah. Not exactly the same, but there's, there's some, there's some similar threads there. Yeah. I think it is similar. I mean, you know, it's interesting that that genre you know, of scar literature is not exactly, what, but, yes. but that's not actually what gets transmitted mm-hmm. because scar literature on the level of narrative even as it critiques the state or critiques the cultural revolution, um, creates the possibility of there being some redemption possible. You know, like it, it sort of folds back into maybe more of a kind of, maybe this is inadequate to say, but there's a certain kind of capacity for reform. Mm. You know, but then the literature that you're talking about actually militates against that entirely. And when you look at the way democracy discourse is wielded with regard to China, there's a continuity with, you know, with regard to how it's wielded against North Korea, too. Mm -hmm. And of course, like figures like Harry Wu, who wrote about, you know, the the Lao guy, you know, like it's also, you know, it'd be really interesting to go to Stanford's Hoover you know, institute and to research more about the money, like who follow the money with regard to that particular critique. Right. And for for our listeners that aren't familiar, Laogai is, you know, a system of uh, reform camps and reform through labor. And this actually touches on what I do in my research on on prisons and, and you know, reform through labor is there's a lot written on these Chinese reform through labor systems. Um, there's a lot of interest in that. And that's part of this this, narr- this narrative and this fantasy of communist China as well. Yeah. And the Soviet Union for that matter. Should we end on if there are any pieces of pop culture that you actually like that come out yes. of 
North or South Korea? Anything that you might recommend for listeners who are interested in that or? Rather than the interview, perhaps. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I just, I, I, I don't know if I have, if, if I could point your listeners to any particular object, mm-hmm. you know, like any one object. But I think that what's interesting, so I'll mention a couple of possibilities. And one is that it's Nick, um, Nicholas Bonner, and I think it's Daniel Gordon. And they are two uh, British filmmakers who have engaged in multiple cultural, joint cultural endeavors with North Korea. And they have done everything from sponsoring um, exhibits of North Korean art um, that traveled around the globe, but they've also made a number of films like The Game of Their, Their Lives, you know, which is, uh, you know, about the mass games. Oh, you know, yeah, I think and, I've seen that. that and, I think so. And the, Crossing the Line, you know, about um, Americans who crossed uh, the DMZ and went into North Korea and ended up living there. As well as, you know, um, sorry, the game of the game of their lives. I'm getting these confused, but there's another one that has to do with some sort of North Korean soccer team that actually played in the World Cup and uh, was staying in some sort of northern English uh, town and the town's people really rallied behind this team. And they assumed that, you know, that once the players went back to North Korea, because they didn't eventually win, that all sorts of horrible things would happen. But then the filmmakers actually went to North Korea and were able to meet with the players who were on this team. And they even, they also sponsored, uh, they, they, they created and produced a film. It's called Comrade Kim Goes Flying or something like that, which is kind of kitschy, you know, and a feature film, a fictional feature film that they produced with North Korea. But they have sort of ceaselessly been involved in really interesting ways in terms of North Korea's culture. And they also in the past have sold North Korean uh posters, you know, the way that Cuban posters have a kind of life out there. So that's one thing that I'd mentioned, but I'd say that another thing too, and this is me speaking in a kind of speculative way. In the times that I've gone to North Korea, one thing that has really struck me is the fact that different people who I met actually knew certain stories. And so there is a kind of oral storytelling tradition that's also, you know, probably involves media, newspaper, and what have you. But people know a lot of the same stories. So there's something kind of folksy, and it's not really pop culture, culture-ish, but it's, um, there's something kind of folksy about um, the anecdote. And oftentimes they're socialist anecdotes and they're about people who sacrificed for the betterment of others. But sometimes these stories are actually quite humorous. And so one story that I heard, and and this is something that a number of other people heard, I mean, would give versions of the story too, but it was actually, you know, both Koreas participated in the Vietnam War. You know, the the South Korea was represented to the tune of over 300,000 soldiers who fought alongside U.S. forces and were known to be incredibly violent and sort of stridently anti-communist and committed war crimes in Vietnam. In fact, 
at this moment, there is a people's tribunal that's being held in Seoul about these, you know, about what it means to be an aggressor nation uh, relative to Vietnam, you know, and, um, but North Korea fought um, alongside the North Vietnamese. And a story that I heard, it was basically, I was talking to uh, this North Korean guide, and we're both sort of sharing in a kind of immature way, our dislike of snakes. And I don't totally feel, you know, disdain or horror about snakes, but we're just saying, yeah, that we didn't like snakes. And then then she thought about it. And she's like, well, actually, there are some snakes that I like. That's what she stated. And she mentioned that during the Vietnam War, there was a U.S. unit that was out patrolling and came across copulating snakes and killed one, but the other one got away. And that wherever this patrol was like going, that it would be met by snakes all over the place and that it drove them insane. Some killed themselves, X, Y, and Z, but that it was a story of, you know, like snakes doggedly pursuing this particular unit wherever it went. Um, And so I just said to her, you know, just jokingly, I said, well, it's almost as though those snakes were part of, you know, the North Vietnamese army. And she looked at me and she said, they're snakes. And I was like, wow, that's so bizarre. But then I was talking, you know, and and I I thought, well, that's so interesting. The story is sort of commonly known and people refer to it. But I was talking to um, someone recently from Vietnam who said that snakes are known in Vietnamese culture. Um, They're usually, when they figure in stories, they figure as agents of revenge or vengeance. And so I just was thinking like this must have been a story that North Koreans and their Vietnamese counterparts sort of shared, you know, and and then it took on a life of its own. So I think that culture in North Korea beyond the products that we have access to exists in complex and perhaps sort of innovative and unusual ways. You know, and story might be one form. Absolutely. I thank you so much for sharing that story and your recommendations and for our conversation today. I really think that our listeners um, will find this really interesting. And we're just so happy that you could come in today and talk with us. Well, thank yes, you thank so you. much. Yeah. Thank you. In wrapping up, we'd like to thank the University of California, Santa Cruz Humanities Institute for their generous funding and support. If you like East Asia for All, you could really help us out by telling others about the podcast and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at East Asia for All or visit our website, eastasiaforall.com for show notes and more information about the podcast. We're lucky that we don't need funding or donations right now, but we could use your support in getting the word out. Thanks.